This is the Commercial Property Show Australia. Show number 16. One little horror story that I had myself, I bought a couple of properties in Waratah in Newcastle. They were in a row of terrace houses. Oh, it happened to be 35 years ago. About a year later, my lawyer rang me and he said, we've actually transferred the wrong properties to you. So. <laughs> hey, what is happening commercial property community? Thanks for joining me once again today. I'm your host, Andrew Bean. And in today's show, James Dawson and I tackle a subject that doesn't get discussed too often, and that's the settlement process. What exactly should a new investor expect? What documents should I get? What physical items should I get for the property? And most importantly, where can it all go wrong? Philip King returns to the show to report on the state of the retail sector during this current COVID climate. He shares where he is still finding quality, high-yielding retail assets and an interesting way he is inspecting these interstate properties. Investing in commercial property is a lot like a team sport. You need a lot of good players around you to complete a property transaction. No one can do it alone. If you're like me and want to surround yourself with like-minded people who have similar property goals, people who motivate you and push you to achieve more, then come and join the commercial property community today. Go to www.commercialpropertyshow.com.au. Our expert guests are just waiting to answer your questions in the forum and together we can help each other reach the ultimate goal of financial freedom. Returning to the show today is the man who wrote The Seven Day Weekend, Mr. James Dawson. How are you, mate? Great. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having me on. No worries, mate. You are more than welcome. Mate, today's chat is going to revolve around the settlement process, and no one really talks about that part of the deal too much. So hopefully we can bring a little value today. So how does it actually work, James? Well, essentially, any property settlement, residential and commercial, is pretty much the same, whereby, you know, a lawyer or conveyancer organises the whole thing for you as a purchaser and sort of liaises between, you know, the other lawyer, uh, the vendor's lawyer and or conveyancer. And, And I would say just at this point, actually, with commercial property, generally a lawyer rather than conveyancer is involved just because there's a bit more complexity with leases, et cetera. But essentially they meet together either electronically or in the old days, a settlement room to exchange all the necessary documents so that the vendor can get paid the correct amount of money for the property and you as the buyer can receive all the correct documents, deeds, etc., for the property that you're buying. And also, you know, the lawyers are there to make sure that the mortgages are properly released, for example, from the vendor if they owed any money. And if there's a new mortgage going on to it, the bank's involved with that as well. But with 
commercial property, of course, there's a lot more detail involved in getting documents provided to you as the new owner, for example. So that's very, very important. And there's a whole slew of things that can happen with those documents and they need to be checked thoroughly by the lawyer prior to settlement and on settlement again. Okay, so what documents should you expect to receive? Essentially with commercial, you need to get everything that has been requested by your lawyer during the due diligence period. So generally what's requested are things like leases, any approvals, you know, trade waste agreements, service agreements for, for any of the machinery in the building, might be air conditioning service agreements, uh, service agreements for the lift. It could be strata documents, for example. They'll also do the searches, you know, the local authority searches, the title searches. If it's a strata thing, as I mentioned, body corporate certificates, insurance certificates, fire certificates. So there's a whole list of things that your lawyer generally will run through with you prior to getting anywhere near the settlement saying, look, this is what we're requesting. And you generally have ability to view all those, of course, before settlement. So they need to be handed over on settlement because often after settlement, it's a bit too late and it's quite hard to get things from the vendor. Obviously, they're waiting to get paid, so they're wanting to provide these things. Yeah, I guess another one now, James, is the documentation for the rent relief. That's going to be a big one. That's right. So any sort of special conditions of the contract, and and I know that people are sort of putting in contracts now that if it's subject to a tenancy, which most obviously a lease commercial property is sold generally subject to the tenancy. So if there's been an arrangement made for COVID rent reduction or rent reduction and deferment, for example, that needs to be all spelt out exactly how that's going to work moving forward with your new tenant as you being the new owner. What physical items should you receive, if any? That's a good point, of course. If you've got a managing agent, generally they'll be chasing a whole bunch of keys. But very, very important that your lawyer gets a set of keys on settlement. Now, the practicality of that is that quite often there's an agreement somewhere along the line prior to settlement that the set of keys will be handed to the managing agent, for example, particularly with lease shops. And of course, myself, I don't have all keys for all my properties. I don't hold them here at home in my office. My managing agent holds them. So those sort of things uh, definitely need to be sorted out so that there's a full set of keys because it can cost a fortune to get them cut. And one problem I recently had, or about a year ago, was the Keys, of course, there are security keys and can only be cut by certain people. So there had to be approvals changed to get new keys cut for that property. So that can be a tricky thing. So and any uh, plans, etc. quite often they will come in a physical format. It's great if they can email them. My shopping centre purchase, there was a, a couple of PDF documents that had nearly 300 pages in them, which was great to get them in a digital PDF form. And also we received a lot of hard copy plans, etc., which for that property was fairly easy because it was built in 2013. With the older properties, it actually can be a lot trickier to get all those old plans, etc., if they are available. Say like, you know, your security keypad stuff, the electronic entry and stuff, would you, you'd obviously get your codes there, but would you also get maybe a user manual as well? Would you expect that? Yeah, that's it. And that's something actually during the due diligence period when you're going through your checklist and obviously hopefully you've inspected the property a number of times, any of those things that are specific to that property that you pick up, 
you know, you should be noting down and then asking your solicitor during the due diligence period to put that in his list of things that you require for settlement. And quite often you'll find, particularly with those electronic locks, etc., that the tenants actually got the manual on them. Or I've been in a position where I've had to Google and get the manual because no one seemed to have it. So sometimes those things need to be chased up, but they're definitely they have to have some warning to be able to provide them. So you don't want to be asking for those things two days before settlement. Given you might have a 30-day due diligence period, you should have a list of requests that you'd like to have on settlement well very early into the piece in the DD period so they can provide them. And, and generally, they'll start sending them over to the lawyer, at least in digital form, so he can view them and review them. Yeah, I guess you could also have stuff like swipe access to gates and things like that if it's a storage facility or or something like that, James, as well. That's it, exactly. And quite often, too, with settlements, just like residential settlements, you've got the ability to have a pre-settlement inspection. And I was just involved with a friend buying a property in Maroochydore, and it was a strata property, and we were unable to attend the pre-settlement inspection, but we got the agent just to go around and do a FaceTime inspection again, just to make sure that nothing really had happened to the property it was completely fine. But that's always a good thing because you could go through the day or two days before settlement and perhaps find something that you could make as a last minute requirement to be available on, on settlement or at least get an undertaking that they're going to provide something within a period of time. Yeah, so I guess that gives you the option to be able to make that shopping list of things that you might need to get if you get that pre-settlement inspection as well. That's really good. Yes. So, mate, just on the topic of keys, when you purchase a property, would you sometimes change the lock, the entry lock, just so you have more security over the property going forward? Or is it something that you would never even think of? Look, I haven't haven't done it, particularly when it's tenanted. It's sometimes more drama than it's worth to start changing locks. I mean, essentially, each tenant is responsible for their space and, and, you know, keeping it locked up. But look, if there is a common area, it's the same thing. Quite often you find these keys are all security keys, meaning that they're a little bit tricky to get copied. So if you're going to do that and you've got, you know, six or eight tenants, obviously it's a bit of a process to make sure everyone gets a new key. And I personally haven't concerned myself with that, but I think that's a good point because it's very property specific if you've got a property that's say in king's cross in sydney or something and you thought that people were getting into the common area or the common area looked a bit untidy all the time you know perhaps people are using it that shouldn't be using it so it may be prudent at least fairly soon after settlement to change those locks and issue the tenants with a new key and just keep on top of the security of the property in general yeah, I guess maybe it's a, a thing you might do if you're buying a vacant property and there there's something of any value that's in the property, like an air conditioning or something like that, where you think possibly the old tenant might come back. That's right. In the settlement process, where can it come undone? Well, okay, so there's a number of areas where it can come undone. But one thing actually, of course, prior to settling is to make sure that you have your insurance in place. Now, your lawyer generally will prompt you on all these things, but Uh, You know, I have heard some people rushing around in the last 24 hours prior to settlement thinking, wow, I've got to get some insurance on the property because, of course, it may not be insured. So, look, all these legal requirements and steps sort of have sub-steps as well that can really sort of dictate the process. So, 
for example, if a lawyer is waiting on a part of a lease that hasn't been signed properly and then he's requested that the vendor solicitor get that re-signed properly, sometimes this can delay the settlement, certainly delays the process, and sometimes it causes the settlement to be put back. And generally, if it's something that the vendor hasn't provided and they should have, there's a pretty good argument for delaying the settlement. And a property that I settled a couple of years ago, we had to delay it by a week because we couldn't get a sort of clearance on some air conditioning units that were in the building, whether they were under lease or actually owned by the vendor. So did he own them to give them to us? And that nearly caused the whole deal to fall over because even on the morning of settlement, he still couldn't, you know, the vendor was having difficulties with all sorts of things and they just simply couldn't provide whether those air conditioning units had been paid out or not. And we chose, you know, it was a multi-million dollar property and they weren't in agreement to holding money back. That's another thing that can happen at settlement. If there's a bit of an argument, your lawyer might say, well, look, we'll withhold, say, $30,000 to cover the cost of the air conditioners in case they're not paid out. And they wouldn't agree to that. And they basically said to us, you either settle now or we're going to move on to another buyer. And I did actually call the bank that was involved in the air conditioners in the original lease documents, couldn't find out anything. And I just chose to settle because I figured it might have been ten or $15,000 in the, you know, in a $2.3 million property, but I was prepared to take the risk rather than miss out on the property. And uh, luckily they had been paid out, you know, but there's little things like that that can be very uh, nerve wracking at the last minute, but you have to have your mind on the big picture sometimes. And not everything is perfect in business and certainly not everything's perfect in properties, as you probably know. So sometimes some things aren't quite correct when you settle and it has to be a commercial decision whether you know, you're going to accept perhaps a little bit of extra risk. And I can remember my lawyer saying to me in that instance, he said, well, you know, totally up to you, but you know, you could be up for 15 grand if those air conditioners haven't been paid out properly or it could be fine. And I said, I'm prepared to take the risk. And, and you know, that's what I had to do. Now, maybe some people wouldn't, but I thought in that value of property, it was sort of neither here nor there, whether they were owned or not. Yeah, I guess it's all these little like handshake kind of deals that you have to like sort out and make sure you've got all your ducks in a row with them just in case it bites you in the ass in the future. Well, that's it. I mean, it's like when you're buying a property that's got a fit out, for example, which, you know, a lot of commercial properties have, whether it's an office or a cafe, it's essential to find out who owns that fit out. And you'd be surprised how many times no one's really quite sure, you know, the cafe owner that's perhaps being the third owner of a cafe and has bought the business and just moved in with the existing fit out there, you would assume that somewhere along the line there's been an agreement as to who owns that fit out, but quite often there's not. I mean, sometimes like we have done part fit outs of cafes, so you've got to be very specific if you do sell that property or release it that, yes, look, we own the, uh, you know, all the exhaust hoods and all the uh, refrigeration or cool room for example, because when you're selling the property or buying the property, you want to know whether you're buying that as well or not. Yeah, definitely, mate. You would need all that information for your depreciation schedule, though, wouldn't you? That's it. And look, and sometimes it's great if they are provided, if there's been a depreciation schedule for the property, and of course, everyone should have one, but a lot of people don't. You can go through that and that can actually really set off some little flags here and there where you see things that are in that depreciation schedule, any sort of equipment, etc and you can go through that and then you can you know make a note on that pdf 
and send that to your lawyer and say, look, we need to determine who owns these 22 items, for example. And then they have to get to work and go back to the vendor and find out who owns what. Yeah, definitely. So, mate, are there any online apps that are making the settlement process a lot more efficient these days? There are. I mean, there's there's one, well, it's the prime one, which is called PEXA, which is Property Exchange Australia. So, basically, it manages all the conveyancing transactions and settles them all electronically. So, it means that everything can be settled really quickly. And it's a similar setup that I had property in the United States not 25 years ago, and they had a similar sort of system then where you just basically went into one office. It wasn't fully electronic, but everything happened instantly. So it basically, it, it allows the settlement to take place without the need to anyone to physically be there. So all the title particulars are checked and all the information is checked. And then this process was often carried out sort of manually at settlement. So it saves a hell of a lot of time and this is the way that it's going. So everyone will be hearing about PEXA, which is Property Exchange Australia. So that is the way that's going forward. And basically one of the benefits is that the registration and everything happens immediately. So as soon as the settlement process goes through, transfer of the title can take as little as 10 minutes. Well, wow. I have heard of that one. And with the online app PEXA, does that mean that it's cheaper to actually settle the property? You don't have to pay the solicitor as much? It doesn't seem to be. <laughs> Look, I think there are fees involved with it. And I guess that the savings are that, you know, one of the savings is that funds come directly the same day. So, you know, in the past, there'd be this sort of clearance of checks and things arrive. And if you settled on a Friday, you might not see the money till a Tuesday or Wednesday, that sort of thing. When you were selling a property and getting the deposit back from the age and all that type of stuff. So, you know, I think there's there's a saving in that. But I'm just not sure that there's been any reduction in legal fees. And uh, that's a good point, actually, Andrew, because obviously before you engage a, a lawyer or a conveyancer to act for you, they really should give you a full rundown of all the costs for their services. And, and you know, it's very simple, but some of the documents that I've seen to outline that are 48 pages long. Wow. Yeah, so... Uh, you really have to go through that. I got one recently, which was an estimate of, you know, $2,700 or something like that to act for us on a sale of a property. So, and it was clearly set out how they were coming up with that amount. And then also they had uh, a listing there of any extras that were going to be performed at what rate they were going to be charged. So very important that people check that before they actually engage a, a lawyer or conveyancer. Yeah, it makes it nice and clear, doesn't it? So, mate, have you ever had a deal fall over at settlement? I've had, uh, yes, I've had personally had one where it had a happy ending, which was great. And look, you do hear of things all the time where, you know, something's just not right and people fail to make the settlement and the vendor, the vendor, for example, pulls out or something like that or someone dies. That's another thing that's generally in a standard contract. But I had a, a sale of some land up in Mackay years ago and my bank wasn't ready for the settlement. And I remember the block of land was 120 grand. It was a backyard. We'd split off this house and our bank wasn't ready for settlement. And because of that, the buyers were able to pull out of the deal. And we were initially annoyed, but then we end up selling the backyard for a little bit more than that later on. So... Oh. Everyone's got to be ready. And sometimes banks aren't ready. But I think now with the way things are going electronically with PEXA and all that, 
that will probably not happen so much. And also one, one little horror story that I had myself, uh, I bought a couple of properties in Waratah in Newcastle, oh, have to be 35 years ago. And uh, about a year later, my lawyer rang me, they were in a row of terrace houses and he said, we've actually transferred the wrong properties to you. So <laughs> had to, uh, but you know, that was one of the things of the manual system with the old system titles and all that, they were very confusing. And, you know, often terrace houses, for example, had a similar lot numbers and, you know, DPs and all that. And, and unbeknown to us for two years, you know, we, we actually owned the wrong properties. <laughs> they sold the road. So uh, that had to be all reversed. The lawyers sorted it all out. You know, someone just figured it out that there'd been a mistake. So, you know, it was a little bit of a horror story. God knows what would have happened if they'd burnt down, you know. Oh, wow. You might have dodged a bullet there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, mate. So you actually have uh, a new service that you are providing to, to clients. Do you want to speak about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So we've been asked uh, so many times over the years to do uh, a more sort of one-on-one mentoring service, I guess, for people. And actually, a few years ago, I did take on 10 people a year, which was basically $25,000 a year and really was a one-on-one sort of holding hand process to help people get a really great deal. And we found that was really good, but we just thought it was quite limited, actually, because to give people the service that they deserve, you could only take on a small amount of people. And actually, a few of those people, you know, signed up for two years in a row and did really well out of that, which was great. And I'm still in contact with those people all the time. So just rolling on, we had a couple of years break from that. And then just uh, this year, we decided that we would launch a, a sort of more price conscious product for one-on-one mentoring and I've got a small team of coaches that have been working with me for a couple of years there's only there's only six of us and we have a great service now where we help people we've got really great software in place as well which makes it a lot easier I oversee everything as sort of the head coach and in in constant uh, contact with all the coaches and the software allows me to view everything that's going on and, and essentially it's about helping people once again to get a great deal and, you know, looking at deals, looking at uh, potential upsides in deals. So I review most of those deals and, and we just help people move day to day and keep their momentum going to get to that, that goal of getting whatever property and cash flow goal that they have, just get them to that in a quicker manner. And we also work with, uh, we have our buyer's agents that we work with and it's not compulsory to buy through them, but they find some great off-market deals. So these people get the benefit of that as well. Yeah, I think that's great, mate. It's definitely a service that I'm going to definitely check out. If the listeners would like to learn more about how to use commercial property to reach financial freedom, James has a free webinar that you can directly access via the Commercial Property Show affiliate link, which is www.jamesdawsoncommercial.com au forward slash cps and uh where else can they contact you james just go to jamesdawsonproperty.com.au and there's uh, plenty of little contact buttons there as well fantastic mate today's guest has been james dawson cheers buddy thanks andrew chat soon
Returning to the show today is author and founder of Engines of Wealth, it's Mr. Philip King. How are you, mate? Very good, Andrew. Thanks for the introduction. No worries, buddy. How's everything going on your end, mate? Yeah, look, still getting a lot of interest from investors. Obviously, in the current economic climate, the focus has become more specific, and uh, I guess we'll talk about that later, uh, of investors you know, just looking to safeguard their investments in a COVID-19 world. Yeah, that's right. So today's topic is all about what's happening in the retail sector during the COVID world. So, mate, what markets are you currently buying retail assets in? Well, look, I've always been a big supporter of cash flow returns. And one of the, I think, attributes of retail property that I love is that we are able to to follow returns because of the low maintenance nature of a retail commercial shop. I talk about in the book, Engines of Wealth, that when we're buying a retail shop, in actual fact, what we're buying really is three Besser brick walls and a concrete floor. The glass shop front is insured by the tenant. So really, for the investor, the only thing to go wrong is the air conditioner and the hot water service. And both of those items typically have a lifespan of 10 years. So what this means for retail shops is that the ongoing management uh, is very easy. And we also have a tenant that it's their business, their livelihood, uh, their job. So they're on site and able to, to get tradesmen to come in and fix things easily. And hence what that means is we can follow the best returns. Um, Now, I've always found Victoria to be a hotly contested market, and I'm still seeing properties down there, you know, trading at 5 to 6% capitalisation rates. In Sydney, that's also the same, where we're seeing capitalisation rates at that level. And hence why I have focused further afield, and my ideal target areas have been Gold Coast, Brisbane and the Sunshine Coast. So I call that the golden rectangle of Queensland. And I'm still finding good quality investment properties around the seven to seven and a half percent returns in those in those capital cities. Okay, so what's actually happening in those markets, mate? Are they very, very similar for retail assets? There's definitely been a refocus by investors, and this has also been assisted, I think, by the banks. Hospitality has certainly softened to the point where it's very difficult to move a restaurant or a hospitality business or a recreational business such as gyms, taekwondo centres, kids' playground centres, jumping castle centres, birthday centres. Those centres that were typically trading strong in the new COVID-19 world are less desirable given their susceptibility to to the virus. Restaurants certainly are still majorly impacted. And the reason for that's obviously the social distancing that's occurring, where we have most, well, all restaurants need to comply with the one person per four square metre rule. And this is seeing, you know, restaurants that are typically licensed for 130, 140 people, all of a sudden they're now only licensed to accommodate 40 people. So for them to be able to trade and operate profitably with those restrictions in place 
is a major hurdle and challenge for them. And we're seeing this also reflected in the difficulty in getting banks to want to lend into that sector. So for me, very difficult to move a restaurant in those conditions. And what that then means is that the investor's focus has turned to other tenancy types that have an intrinsic resistance to the virus that are uh, considered an emergency services type business. And what I'm seeing here is if a retail shop's going to run off the shelf, then it's probably going to be a, have a doctor in it, a physio, a chiro, a pathology, a radiology centres, dental, aged care, NDIS providers, as well as those staple tenants that I always liked, such as, you know, lawyers, family law, hairdressers, beauticians, accountants, those types of tenancies, I'm still seeing a desire from investors to secure, and I'm seeing them trade well. So the essential services are obviously doing well. Are they, that cap rate, is that staying the same? And then the other services, is the cap rate pushing out? Well, no, in actual fact, I've just this week bid, there was a couple of big EOIs closing on a large shopping centre valued around the $12 million mark at Sandstone Point, which is up near Caboolture, quite a large IGA anchored centre. There was another centre uh, with a, a night owl anchored centre at uh, Albion, which is Brisbane CBD. And the bidding there was at 55 to 6%. So I'm still seeing a lot of strength for neighbourhood centres. So, you know, I would have hoped that some of the capitalisation rates would have started blowing out and hopefully we could see more centres around the 7, seven to 7.5%. But I haven't seen that happening in the neighbourhood centres. I'm seeing owners and real estate agents still holding out for offers, you know, in the 6.5% range or sub 6.5%. And again, I think it's because of the desirability of the professional services type nature of these neighbourhood centres. So when you're looking at those local community centres where you might have, uh, you know, that area is zone neighbourhood centre, you've got a block of 10 shops, and typically what you find in those in those neighbourhood centres is things like doctors, hairdressers, beauticians, uh, accountants, a solicitor, personal service, professional services type businesses that you can't order online. If you need to go to the physio, the chiro, the doctor, you're going to go up to the local professional and have your problems addressed. So still a lot of strength there. And I would I would separate out those shopping centres where I am potentially expecting a weakness. And this is in areas where you have like a major shopping centre, such as like Noosa, Malulabar shopping strips, Maruchidor, Coolum. I'm starting to see some weakness there where we're starting to get some vacancies. Even if I look at Sydney, when I look at Cronulla, I took a walk through the main street of Cronulla last week and I counted 31 vacant tenancies in Cronulla. Wow. Um, so, so, and, you know, Cronulla has typically had a high floor space ratio of rent, and I think one of the highest in the country is Hastings Street, Noosa, where we do see rents anywhere from $3,000 to $4,000 a square metre. And in times of COVID-19, yes, I think for tenancies to pay these enormously high rates, they need a huge vibrancy and a huge dynamic of traffic coming past their doors every day. And during COVID-19, 
we have the opposite happening. We have people staying at home. We have people less likely to want to go out and mix in public. And so when we see the traffic dropping off in these, you know, high rent areas, I think we're going to see businesses under pressure and certain businesses not able to survive through the COVID-19 impacts here. So I think shopping centres versus neighbourhood centres are definitely two different offerings in the retail market. I'm seeing neighbourhood centres hold their capitalisation rates and trade strongly. And I'm starting to see some weakness in shopping centres where certain businesses will come under pressure. And I think they'll continue to come under pressure, Andrew. I think what we need to acknowledge right now is floating through the Australian economy, there's some significant money. So I heard on a a report the other day that there's $60 billion from JobKeeper and JobSeeker that's being distributed out into the economy that's flowing around. And in addition to that, I was told that there's up to $40 billion that's been taken out of Australians' superannuation accounts. So this is the the ability for individuals to take out $10,000 last financial year and $10,000 this financial year out of their super. And that's injected a further $40 billion into the economy. So I think this has an effect of holding the economy up, which is no doubt the government's desired effect. But I think eventually that money's going to run out. And when we start to see the government withdraw the JobKeeper bonuses, I think, yes, we're going to see businesses put staff off. We're going to see people, unfortunately, lose their jobs. And consumer spending, I think, will come under pressure. So I I certainly don't think we're through the toughest days ahead yet. Yeah, definitely not. So, mate, what about single shops? You've spoken about neighbourhood shopping centres and then your larger kind of shopping centres. What about just single shops? Are you seeing any fluctuation in the cap rates there? Again, look, in the last month, I have sold a single strated physiotherapy centre. I've sold a single strated chiropractic centre. I've sold a a radiology centre, all single strated shops in larger complexes. So, absolutely, there is still a strong demand from my clients and my investors, where the tenant type has that intrinsic resistance to COVID-19. So I am definitely looking for medical assets or other businesses. There was one I'm looking at right now, which has got a a Relationships Australia. There's another one that has a headspace, government counselling services tenancy. These types of tenancies, certainly the divorce rate in Australia remains healthy, and uh, we're not seeing you know, a drop off in those tenancies either. They're still in in high demand. So what kind of cap rates were you achieving with those essential services that you just said you sold? The physiotherapy centre I purchased in Maroochydore, that was at a 7.4% cap rate. And that equated to about a 7% when you added on stamp duty, legal fees and commissions. So we call that an off the stick rate of 7.4 and a fully loaded rate of 7%. I sold a hairdressing salon in a Sippy Down Centre, again, at a 7% fully loaded rate. And I also sold a physiotherapy centre in the Sippy Downs Coles complex, which went around that 7% mark. So still getting some good deals out there for our clients and in some really strong retail centres. I certainly love that Sippy Downs Centre. It's one of the stronger performing Coles supermarkets, and it's a very vibrant, busy, dynamic centre with the university across the road. And these are the types of things that I look for in investments. 
that there is a major draw card there that will ensure the busy dynamic of that area and that centre. Yeah, I guess one of the the aspects of commercial property is that because you do invest in a commercial property for positive cash flow, the actual owner doesn't need to give it up if they don't want to do that. They hold on to it if they don't get their their price. That's right. And uh, I do question people selling. People often say to me, why would somebody sell such a good performing asset? And I, I typically say there's three common reasons why people sell. And the first one is that, you know, unfortunately they're sick or they've got cancer and they want to tidy up their affairs before they pass and leave their wife money. I don't like seeing that because I think the wife would probably appreciate having the shop left in its current form rather than cash in the bank because the return is going to be so much better. And it's got that, I think, redundancy with time that each year you put your rent up with CPI or inflation and your income stays current. Another major reason is that you have the divorce rate. If couples get divorced, in many cases, they need to sell the shop to be able to split the proceeds up and, you know, go their own separate ways. So that's another big reason. And the third reason, obviously, is people do die and pass away and their children are left the asset. And rather than keep it, they decide to sell it and split the money. And again, I think uh, some of those decisions are made far too quickly. How are you actually inspecting these properties with a border shark? So I purchased myself one of those smart televisions and I went with the 4,000 LED quality option. So I've got a crystal clear image, smart television. I can get the real estate agents in Queensland to FaceTime me in those cases. And then I mirror my phone to the plasma television, which is obviously for business purposes, tax deductible, Andrew. And, (laughs) And I'm able to have the real estate agent walk me around the property walk me through the tenancies while I sit in the lounge room watching it on the big plasma screen. Look, it's not as good as being there in person, walking around and and driving around the area, but I think it's the next best thing. I'd certainly get a feel for the property, a feel for the surroundings. I can get onto Google Earth. I can walk around the property. I can look at the suburb. There's tricks I talk about in the book on Google Earth that I like to get up three kilometres in the air and just make sure that the property is what I call in the middle of an ant nest, that it is in a densely populated area, which will ensure a busy dynamic around that centre. So, yeah, using Google Earth, using FaceTime and smart TVs, I think it's, you know, it's a great option and I'm still able to inspect properties. Yeah, I really like that idea of mirroring it to your smart TV. That's great. Mate, so are you seeing a lot of tenants on rent relief? And then how are you working through that with your buyers? Sure. So like even myself personally, uh, on the, some of the assets that I own, I think I had around probably about 60% of my tenants on COVID rent relief. So obviously the COVID guidelines mandated that landlords provide their tenant a discount in situations where the tenant's business had closed. And I certainly had instances of that where I had some gyms and they're closed. I had some beauticians and they were closed. I had a couple of dental surgeries. And again, the government closed dentists because they didn't want them using the PPE. So for a period of time, they were closed as well. So for all of my tenants that had their businesses shut, I offered rental relief. And also for those businesses such as cafes that were limited 
to serving takeaway. Some of my restaurants were limited to just takeaway meals. I also provided a various levels of discounts to them. But that relief was sort of provided in March, April and May. By June, I provided less relief. I think I lowered the rent by 25% instead of 50 because by June, most businesses in New South Wales and Queensland were back up and running. And Queensland has always remained open for business and hasn't had a further lockdown, knock on wood, since then. So by the 1st of July, I think most landlords would have had their businesses trading back, hopefully, at capacity. Certainly, discounts were still required in the hospitality scene. So where we still have restaurants, I'm still offering some discounts to some of the restaurant operators because, you know, they are, their business is down and their turnover is being affected by the one person per four square metre rule. That's really hurting them at the moment. And, you know, we've just got to hope that the government is looking at when that will be minimised and maybe one person per two square metres would help that industry through that. And look, in Queensland, the gyms are open. Certainly, I won't comment on Victoria. They've been in shutdown for the past six weeks. It's a very difficult situation for tenants and landlords still in Victoria. So typically the assets that you are buying, they're not on rent relief anymore. That's correct, Andrew. Uh, I noticed today that Anastasia Palaszczuk, I believe, has opened up. Anybody living from Byron Bay, Tweed Heads and up is allowed into Queensland. So hopefully we will see those border restrictions ease. Okay, so how do you feel about bulky retail? I certainly like bulky retail. A good example of that that I'm looking at one right now is 25 Pit Can Way, South Australia. And that's a $22 million centre. Super big, large tenancies in there. I'm considering that for a property trust and a syndicate for my investors. I think there's certainly an, an absolute need for those large, bulky, good retail centres. Businesses like, you know, Deco Rug, Carpet Court, Toys R Us, Pillow Talk, all of these large footprint format retail centres, boating, camping, fishing, 99 bikes are all excellent examples of businesses that are well-suited. Some of the big rivers stores, there's another one there, Totally Workwear, are good examples of large national tenants that operate in some of these larger footprint retail stores. Typically, you do need a little bit more of a budget to go in and buy those larger retail footprint stores, but there's always investors at different levels. So certainly, I like those larger industrial stores. And you can come across some good individual strata stores with a national tenant in those larger retail stores. So, mate, do you think retail will recover from COVID-19, the ones that are not essential services? 100% I do, Andrew. I think what COVID-19 has taught us all is that nobody likes to stay home. And we all get a little bit of cabin fever when there's nowhere to go and the restaurants are closed and the pubs and clubs were closed. You know, people were going around the bend with boredom and people like to get out and go for a walk and browse and shop. Just last weekend, it was a miserable rainy day here in Sydney and I said to the wife, why don't we go to Westfields and just get out of the house, just have a walk around, let's just do some retail therapy. And I still think that is high on the agenda for people to entertain and occupy themselves. And I also think that a lot of the larger retail centres are starting to combine entertainment with shopping. And that's why when you look at some of these larger centres, they'll have a bowling alley in there, they'll have a cinema complex in there, they'll have 
restaurants in there as well. So it's more of a destination to go out for the day rather than just to go and get a bit of retail therapy. So I do believe there will still be strong demand for people to want to go and touch and feel something that they're about to buy rather than just order it online. All right, mate, we'll wrap it up there. So if the listeners have any more questions about this topic, you can jump onto the Commercial Property Show website and ask Phil directly in the forum. Or you can jump on there and check out some of Phil's blog posts. And where else can the listeners contact you, Phil? So they can go to my website at uh, enginesofwealth.com and there's a contact form that they can fill out and I will call them back. Fantastic, mate. All right, my guest today has been Philip King. Cheers, buddy. Thank you, Andrew. All right, all right. That brings us to our newest segment to the show, and that segment is called Ripper Ripper Resource. In this segment, I'm going to share some resources that I have personally used, read, or listened to that have made a big difference in my life, and I think they deserve to be shared. So, this week's Ripper resource is Cashflow Quadrant by Robert T. Kiyosaki. This book was one of the first books that really opened my eyes to the power of cash flow, the power of passive income, and making that a focus of my future investing career. What this book did was really help me identify what quadrant I was actually earning my income from and where I wanted to go. And in the book, it also explains that you're the average of the five people you hang out with the most. And that was really alarming for me because the people that I hung out with the most are work people and they're not in the position where I want to be or I see myself in future. And it also opened my eyes to the different types or different ways to invest. In America, investing for cash flow first and appreciation second is quite common. In Australia, it's really not that common. And if you say you're trying to do that, people think it's quite risky. And it actually set me on my path to look for a different way, a different asset. And I think without that book, I might not be here creating this podcast for you now. So that's a great book. And it is this week's Ripper Resource Cashflow Quadrant by Robert T. Kiyosaki. That brings us to the end of the show. I want to thank our guests and Kevin McLeod for the music. Don't forget to jump on the Commercial Property Show website and sign up to be a member of the commercial property community. And remember, in the words of Grant Cardone, committing big makes you deliver big. I'm Andrew Bean, signing off. This has been a Develop a Life production.